Everyone wants to go ahead and find their way back to their seats. We'll get started. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, go ahead. Um, it's good to see everybody fellowshipping, having fun. Uh, that's an important part of church. Uh, it's always a joy to see uh, and hear that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is John. Uh, I work with Dan and some of the others here on the staff as we, as we try to create a church that brings glory to God, that magnifies grace, that, that magnifies the gospel. And um, most of you who've been here know that uh, we've been in a series on Ruth. Uh, this happens to be the fourth uh, sermon in our series on Ruth, so we've, we've reached the halfway point. And last week, Dan covered the first half of chapter 2, and this, uh, this morning, we'll be looking at the second half uh, of chapter 2. And this has been a little bit of a departure from some of the things we've done. We've walked through Ephesians, we've hit a couple Psalms, uh, we've preached about what the values are of the church, uh, and this is uh, one we're preaching through a story. And it's a little different going through that. Um, for those of y'all who are kind of theological nerds like me, I love going through like a book of Romans. Uh, I could spend a year in that going through and enjoy having a pastor parse every verb and tell me what things mean and explore deep theological truths. Uh, but I read this this week and um, I really love this quote about stories. And it says, stories in the Bible teach us about God's character and his dealings with people. From biblical stories, we learn of God's faithful love, holiness, and mercy. These are not learned through abstract theological propositions, but through life stories of real people living real lives in a real world. God has chosen to make himself and his character known to all humanity through the accounts of his relationships with particular human beings. And we happen to be looking at this story from Ruth, and there's lots of stories that you probably heard preached through uh, in the past in your uh, upbringings in church. And God's chosen to record this story of Ruth and his dealings with Ruth and those around her uh, for, for a specific reason. And I suppose that we could take many other people that are in the Bible. We may not even know their names that had spectacular examples of God's love and his sovereignty shown to them. And one of the keys to this book, book of uh, Ruth is something a couple months ago, ago I preached on from Psalm 118. And it's one where we read all 26 verses. And the refrain at the end of each one of those verses was, His steadfast love endures forever. And that's the concept, the Hebrew word of hesed. And uh, as I mentioned then, that one of my Old Testament professors mentioned that next to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, it's the second most important word in the Old Testament. And so that's God's covenant enduring steadfast love. And we see this from God in this story, and we see this demonstrated from person to person in this story as well. Now, when we're telling a story, there's many viewpoints that we could take. We could take, for instance, the viewpoint of Naomi as she comes back into Bethlehem, her dealings with Ruth as she sees Ruth and Boaz's uh, relationship progress, and we could tell the story from her point of view. We could tell the story from Boaz's point of view or the people with whom Ruth works in the field. But since Ruth's name is on the book and she's the main character, 
we've been telling this story from Ruth's point of view. And as you see in your insert there, Dan last week uh, preached through three encounters uh, that Ruth had. And we're going to carry the same theme through this week, and we're going to look at three more encounters that Ruth has in this second chapter. And so we'll start reading uh, in verse 14, and we'll go through 17 to see the first encounter. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also pull, out from, also pull out from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And the first encounter Ruth is going to have here is with generosity. So we pick up from last week. Ruth is working in Boaz's field. She's doing what the poor in that time would often do. is She's following behind the reapers, and whatever falls on the ground is hers to pick up, and take home, and hers to eat. This was in the law of how to take care of of the poor and those who couldn't otherwise provide for themselves. And so this relieved Ruth's anxieties that she found a safe field to be in, and Boaz showed her a significant amount of grace in taking care of her. And so Boaz is keeping the law. The law was also don't glean the borders of your field so that the poor could find that, and leave what's dropped. Now, we know this was in the time of the judges, and this was a time where Israel was actually good in the time of the judges. Uh, Naomi and her family left because of famine in the land, and they've come back, and Boaz is having a plentiful crop. So we know that this is a good time in the midst of the judges, because there's no famine. And Boaz has obviously been blessed by God, because he has this abundance of crop. And he showed the generosity that was expected of him, but he showed more than that. He showed a lavish generosity to her. And he starts showing that by probably what was a social faux pas during the day. He took this foreign widowed woman and he asked her at the noontime meal, who was just following around picking up crops off the ground, and he invited her to come to his table to eat with his employees. Now, for that day, that probably was a radical departure from what other people would expect. He not only invited her to his table, He's the one that passes her bread. It's not just like this community table and the bread baskets going around and everybody takes something. Boaz, who's the owner and the master of this field, passes bread directly to her. And beyond that, he says, okay, this bread's probably dry, probably doesn't have a lot of taste. Come dip this in my wine. He didn't offer someone else's. He offered his own. And not only that, she had enough so that she was full and that she had enough to take home to share with her mother-in-law. And then he also says, all right, you're not just going to have to go behind and pick up the little scraps that are on the ground. I'm going to have my young men, they're going to kind of pull some stalks out and leave them there, and they're probably just going to chuck them on the ground, and I'm going to let you pick that up as well. So it's no accident that she got so much food. Now, it says she got an ephah of barley, And most scholars calculate that that was about 20 to 30 pounds of barley. And based on what it would take to cook bread back then and the average diet of someone, uh, between Naomi and Ruth, they calculate that that was about two to three weeks worth of food. So that's not a bad first day. She finds a good field. She finds protection. She gets to eat in the executive dining room. 
And she goes home with two to three weeks worth of food in her first day. And the application of Ruth's encounter with generosity is fairly obvious, is that we should be a generous people. But I really want to take it further than that and not just think about being generous. I want us to stop and I want us to think about the source of our generosity, because that's really what Boaz did. And Boaz was a godly man living beyond what the law required of him. But we all have something greater in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. We have been made to live for a new purpose, or for a new person, and that defines our purpose. And I want to repeat that since I messed it up. We have been made to live for a new person, which defines our purpose. And that order is significant. The person comes before the purpose. Now, we live in a time where we're not under the Mosaic law that requires how we're to be generous. The New Testament exhorts us to be generous. It exhorts us to take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. But it's not a requirement of the law. And purposes come and go. And, and, and especially at this time, with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, there are societal norms which we might say are a purpose. And so we're doing something for Thanksgiving for Hall High. We'll do something for Christmas, and, and that's great. But when the purpose of that time goes, what do we have left behind? Those of us that are here that have been saved by Jesus Christ, we have a person to live for a purpose that goes beyond the times that society would give. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And every time I read that word, verse, I love the word lavished. And synonyms for that are extravagant, to heap, to shower, to pour, to deluge, and occurring in profusion. And so the principle here is we give him a response to what Christ has done for us. And I think what we really have to stop and think about is do we really understand what Christ has done for us? If we understand the depths of sin that we were in and what Christ had to do to pay for our sin, to make us alive, to make us children of God, and to give us what we have, if we understand what Christ has done, it changes our view of the world and how we should respond and interact therein. And really the ultimate question for this, both for unbelievers and for believers, is have you accepted the lavish love of the Father? Now, this could be someone who's never accepted the love, the new life, and salvation in Christ. Or probably for most of us here today, it could be a Christian who's having trouble believing and seeing that God is working in their lives and actively giving them lavish love right now. And if we remember his said, eternal, unfailing, steadfast, covenant love. God is still doing it that in our lives. And even when we can't see it, even when we don't experience it, even when we don't feel it, it's still at work in our lives. And I think it's good for us every once in a while to stop and rem remember God's lavish love and then ask ourselves, what am I doing with the lavish love that God has given to me? The second encounter starts in verses 18 uh, through 20, and we'll read there. And she took what she had gleaned and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. 
So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And the second encounter that Ruth is going to have here is an encounter with hope. Now, let's imagine Ruth. She's, she's finished working all day outside in the hot sun. She's probably lugging this sack of about 30 pounds as she's going home. She's a tough woman. Um, and so she knows she's walking home. She's got somewhat of a moody mother-in-law, which we've seen in the previous verses. And who knows what she's thinking. Maybe she's got some smug satisfaction as she's going to open the door and just lay down this 30-pound sack of barley. I probably would, but Ruth's probably more godly than I am. Uh, but I'd be a little bit smug about that. And so she opens the door, lays down this bag, and her mother-in-law kind of looks over like, whoa, where'd you get that? And Ruth, saving a surprise, like, oh, by the way, I've also got dinner for you here tonight. And Emmy's like, where did that come from? You've only worked one day. And so then the questions start. And I imagine these are probably kind of cynical. If I read between the lines, like, all right, where'd you go? What'd you do? And who gave this to you? And so, you know, so Naomi's probably like, all right, this doesn't seem right. But then when Ruth mentions Boaz, there's this pause and her eyes light up and she starts to have this transformation right in front of Ruth's eyes. And we start to see a completely different Naomi. She invokes the covenant name of Yahweh and his promise of his said for the living and the dead. And she remembers Yahweh and she returns back to him. So they've had the immediate hope and their need fulfilled of being able to eat that day and that night. And they're looking at this and saying, we're set for the next two to three weeks. We're doing pretty good. But there's a greater hope that Naomi brings up through this promise of a redeemer. And I want to sidetrack just a little bit and talk about this concept of a redeemer because we're going to see this really play out in chapters 3 and 4. And if you look up this concept of a redeemer in the Old Testament, you'll see it listed as a goel, a G-O-E-L, or as a leverite marriage, an L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Now, we know Israel was a largely patriarchal society where inheritance and land rights and blessings and all these things are passed down through sons. And the easiest way to illustrate how this process worked was you have a brother over here uh, who's married and has sons and has children. And he has this younger brother over here who's married and doesn't have any male sons or any children at all, perhaps. And the younger brother dies. So what was allowed in the covenant and actually what was put in the law in Leviticus 25 was this concept of a Leverite marriage or redemption. And so what was supposed to take place was the older brother was supposed to marry the widowed wife of his younger brother. And so that they could have children together that would be named after the younger brother. And so the property rights, the inheritance, the name would continue on for his younger brother uh, after he had passed away. Now, there were varying customs about this. Uh, there isn't much written exactly about how this worked. Uh, one of the ways I read about how this worked that I just thought was hilarious and was a woman's way to kind of get back was if the next person in line refused to do this, the guy was supposed to take off his sandals and pass them on, which was apparently a huge insult back then. And then the woman got to spit in his face. So, so the women still had some, had some ways to get back if the guy refused to do what he did. But what we see here, we see this in Naomi, we see this in the change 
of that, if we're reading in this story, and Ruth is looking at Naomi, and we see this ray of hope, and Naomi starts to think, okay, everything that I lost, everything that was, that was taken from me as we left, you know, my husband Elimelech dying, Malon and Kilion, my son's dying, and I've got this Moabite woman who's widowed, and she's decided she's going to come with me, whether I want her to or not. She said she's going to come. And Naomi's seeing how what she's lost, this stuff can be partially restored to her. But Ruth is also seeing something, too, that her declaration when she goes with Naomi of your people will be my people and your God will be my God, that hope and that promise that she has can be restored through this process as well. But there are shadows of an obstacle there. One, it mentions Boaz as a close relative. It doesn't say he's the closest relative. And there's another problem is that Ruth is a Moabite. Now, there were no provisions in the law of what or how this could happen with a foreign woman. It was for the people of Israel that this custom was to take place. And we talked about many times, and we won't dwell on it, that how Israelites were forbidden to marry Moabites because they had gone off another way after other gods. So in this godly time in Israel where God is blessing the land and there's this time of famine past, would there be a man who would determine that it's God's will for him to marry a woman that had been forbidden to marry? So could this redemption, could this Leverite marriage actually take place? Now, Ruth is probably sitting there hearing about how this process takes place, and it might sound a little creepy to her, kind of like it did us. And she's probably wondering, all right, do I go ask this guy out? Does he come ask me out? Do I have to rely on my mother-in-law to do this? Because I really don't want my mother-in-law involved in this. You know, so how is this going to work? But this was placed in the law and in Leviticus to restore hope to families who had lost someone uh, in their family so that the blessings and the inheritance could carry on. And so the application for this encounter really is a question of where is your hope? Is it in working harder? Is it in trying to manipulate circumstances to fit what you need? And my argument is these things aren't necessarily bad. We should work hard. We should try to do everything that we can to fulfill the goals and the things that we have. But the key to that is ultimately where is the focus of your hope? Because if it's on you, if it's on me, we're all going to fail miserably every single time. But if hope is fixed on the sure promises of God and his unfailing character and his, his, and his has said, then our hope is sure. Now this hope may not come to be realized when we want, how we envisioned that it would happen, but hope in God is always sure. It may not be pleasant at all while we're in this season of seeing hope and waiting for it. In fact, metaphorically for us, it may actually feel like we're walking around in a strange field in a strange land, in the hot sun, literally waiting for people ahead of us to drop something so that we can get our proverbial daily bread. It may feel like that while we're there, but there is a sure hope. And that hope is based on the fact that Christ, who redeemed us for our biggest need and brought us to an eternal salvation, will redeem each and every circumstance that comes into our lives, no matter how bad it may look at the time. Romans 8 says this, For in this hope, the hope in Christ, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And there may be those clouds and those shadows there where we we know there's a hope. We know there's a chance that something good can happen, but we don't quite see it. Circumstances of life are, 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 are in the way of seeing that. But we wait with patience because of sureness of hope in God. And then thirdly, we'll look at the last encounter, and that's one of trust. Read that in verses 21 through 23. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, Boaz, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, Ruth has a lot to trust here. Um, She's got to trust that Naomi knows what she's talking about, that Naomi's not going to find another family member and leave Ruth alone. Uh, She's got to trust Boaz, that he's going to still keep allowing her to lavishly pick up all this food for them to take care of themselves, because they probably have no other way to sustain themselves. She's got to trust the other reapers, men, that they won't attack her. The women, who quite honestly are probably jealous, and even maybe some of the men, mm-hmm. that Ruth is giving this lavish generosity from Boaz. Probably wondering, okay, why is Boaz doing this? But she keeps working and waiting and trusting during this time. And something I've never really thought about until I, w- I was reading and studying this this week is that phrase, she worked through the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And so people who are hearing this story orally or someone who was living in that time would understand that this is a distinction of a break between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so chapter 2 doesn't run into chapter 3 over a period of, of days. The barley harvest in our calendar or would be the end of late April, and the wheat harvest would be in early June. So we have a period of almost two months where we're not told what's happening. We have this blank space of time before chapter 3 shows up. And Boaz isn't mentioned during these few months. And so we're left to wonder why. Has he been um, brought up this idea of being the redeemer for this family? And is he uncertain what to do? Does he go off to another field that he owns? Is he just drawn himself out of the picture saying, hey, I've been generous and this is, this is what I'm going to do? So this would essentially be like if we had you know, a mid-season cliffhanger of Ruth and Boaz, Boaz is going to be the redeemer, and Ruth sees this ray of hope, and then just wait till next season to see what happens on the TV series. And so there's this massive cliffhanger. And the other thing is, the author puts in, she's still Ruth the Moabite. Ruth is seeing that there's hope, there's this chance of her being redeemed, and being able to be brought in officially into Israel, but she hasn't yet. And so Ruth still carries that label of Ruth the Moabite. Even though she's been converted and it's been acknowledged all over town, Boaz had even heard in the beginning of chapter 2 of how well she had treated her mother-in-law and the good things that she had done, that she hadn't chased after other men, and that she was faithful to her mother-in-law. And she declared famously, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. But she's still carrying around that label that I bet she longs to get rid of. She's seen the possibility of hope. She wants security. She wants children. She wants probably more than anything else to be accepted into this community that she has pledged herself. 
she's heard the stories that have been passed down of how Yahweh has delivered. She's heard of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's heard of this great exodus. She's heard of the God of Israel that when the children of Israel sin, God sends a judge to be able to rescue them from their enemies and deliver them from the things that they have done. But for you and I, we have the promises and what she didn't have. And then we have the Psalms, Proverbs, the rest of the Old Testament, and the New Testament. And we have the completed work of Christ on the cross to be able to look back and to trust. And I'm just going to tell you, trust, trust is hard. I hate it. I really do. I want to fix situations. I want to arrange them so that I can do what needs to be done. I'm impatient with it. But unlike Ruth, I have page after page in the Bible that I can look at and see the promises that God gives to those who trust. And here are just a couple of my favorites. In Jeremiah 17, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year, in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. A well-known one in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. And then in Nahum, the Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And so we see Ruth's hope, this hope that she has, even though clouded and in shadows right now, we see it manifested through her continued trust. She keeps working, she keeps being faithful. And I don't think that's just a little tag on at the end of that verse where it says, and she continued to live with Naomi, her mother-in-law. We see that she's faithful to the pledge that she made. She probably could have gone around and found some man who was looking to get married and maybe tried to get the security and the children and the things that she wanted on her own. But she continued to work in the same field day after day through the harvest. And she continued to live with her mother-in-law, seeking that which she had pledged. Maybe during this time of waiting, God wanted to see if she would trust enough to receive such a great reward. And maybe there are those seasons of life for us. But we have a greater hope because we have a redemption in Christ. We have a new life and we have a new identity. And I think that's what Ruth wanted more than anything else was that new identity. And I look at myself and I have to look and say, I have a new identity as well. I am not John the sinner. I am John a redeemed and loved child of the Almighty God, from whom nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. But do I really trust in that statement of hope? When hard times come, do I live that out? Do I show others in the good times and in the bad times that I trust in the hope that's set before me? It's been said that the longest distance is from the head to the heart. Because I'm a dork, I measured what it would be from the center of my head to the center of my heart. And it was somewhere between 14 and 15 inches. But, so that's a long distance. But I have the head knowledge of the hope that's set before me. But do I have the heart living to trust and to continue to live out that trust? So as we wrap up today, we've seen Ruth. We've seen her progression in the chapter from anxiety, a foreign woman, a widow, alone, with a moody mother-in-law from the cursed and hated country of Moab. She was shown grace by a godly man, 
We see her gratitude, which resulted in lavish generosity, a promise of hope, and a display of trust. And up to this point, this is Ruth's story, which isn't done yet. And the thing I thought about this week is, what is your story? And what is my story? If you're doubting God's goodness in your life, maybe it would be helpful to write out a portion of your story and see the sovereign hand of God at work in your life. Divide it up into chapters of your life and see what God has done. And even if you aren't doubting, you may fall in love more deeply with the story that God has written for you and is writing in your life when you see it written down. And that, that sovereign hand of God who's provided and who's protected and who's leading you to where he'll go, that may cause you to become more lavishly generous. Either way, the result is we put our hope and our eyes back on Christ and we recommit to trusting in him. And I'll say in my own life, the times that I looked at as being the most dark and the most lonely, those are the times that God has shown himself most faithful. And even though I don't see the full picture yet, I've always seen the love of God clearly manifested over and over again, just like it was in Ruth's life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you reveal your character. We thank you you reveal your love. We thank you that you reveal truths that are found in these stories. And we know these aren't stories that just happened once upon a time, that these aren't fairy tales, that these are your dealing in time with real, actual people, those whom you love, those whom you care for. And Father, we know that you love and you care for us in a deep and profound way, and your lavish love upon us for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to take care of the penalty and the price that we could never pay. And we thank you for that love. We pray that we would be generous people as a result. We pray that we would be, we would live in the hope that's set before us, even though we can't clearly see that hope at times. And we pray that we would trust in you each and every day and recommit ourselves to trusting in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.